0: Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who, along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics in sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's panel. I'm Chris Tinsley. I'm a first-year student here at Sloan, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to the Bill Walsh Room for today's panel, Breaking Away from the Pack, Sports Entrepreneurship. In today's lineup, we have George Postolos, CEO of the Postolos Group, and former president and CEO of the Houston Astros and Houston Rockets, Jennifer Van Dyke, executive at Wasserman, Cole Gahagen at Fanatics, Kevin LaForce, senior vice president of the NFL, and Patrick Keene, CEO of the Action Network. Moderating today's panel will be Saj Cherian. Saj is, at, Fanatic, is at, at Kinetic, rather, which owns three e-commerce companies, including Fanatics, Saj also has venture capital investing background, uh, which will, of course, be useful for today's panel. For those of you who want to ask questions, we encourage you to do so uh, via Twitter using the hashtag entrepreneurship, and we'll save some time at the end for q
2: And with that, kick off to Saj. Thanks, Chris. Thrilled to be back at MIT for my third tour as a moderator. And while in prior years I focused on uh, investing in sports, today we're going to shift to talk about. Uh, the entrepreneurs in sports and the, those entrepreneurs behind some of the, uh, the best businesses uh, in, in our business. Um, we are fortunate to have leaders uh, from the leagues, teams, sports agencies, startups that are really disrupting the status quo. And so we're going to ask them for insight into what makes a great uh, sports entrepreneur. We're going to then dig into aspects of building uh, businesses in sports, everything from identifying market needs to raising capital to building teams. Uh, and the next, our, our panelists are gonna uh, share their collective wisdom on, uh, on, 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 for, for the guys here in, in, in the room that wanna actually start uh, businesses. And then it'll be up to you. Our, um, our panelists are gonna answer questions from you. And so uh, I think uh, you have the ability to, to tweet your questions to us. So, so get ready uh, with those answers and, uh, or those questions, and I'll be sure to take, uh, take them to the group. So what makes a great sports entrepreneur? You know, As I said, we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs in the room, uh, and so I want to start by asking our panel how they got started. Uh, Patrick, CEO of the Action Network, you're leading a sports media company. But uh, tell us a little bit about how you got your start in sports.
3: Yeah, I see you have my Twitter handle there. I'm desperate for followers, so please <laughs> sign up. Um, yeah, so I, you know. I was fortunate many years ago when I was an analyst for a, t- a research and technology company called Jupiter Communications, and I was talking to someone about this earlier, but we were able to work with all the sort of consumer online services. This is back in the day for most of you, are probably too young when AOL and Prodigy and CompuServe and those things, and every league, every team, every organization was trying to figure out what to do. And I remember working with a lot of the digital executives for some of these companies, and it was always the owner's son that was trying to figure out what to do with digital because it was sort of a rounding error and was not that interesting, but um, was able to get access and, and and work very closely with a lot of very smart teams that were trying to understand fandom around digital, but the 90s were a very different era. Um, I remember talking to Mark Cuban when he was starting this little company called Audionet and he wanted to, netcast, as he said, at games. So looking at the future and where we are today and how quickly it has become part of the lexicon, the nomenclature of all sports, if you don't have a digital strategy for engagement and retaining users, you're absolutely doomed to fail. Got
2: it. Kevin, how about you? Where, where was your start? Uh, my mom. My mom. All <laughs> a, right. No joke. All good she, things come from our mom.
4: Yes, uh, right? Yeah. She, um, she was in sports uh, in North Carolina, uh, Olympic festivals and state games, and then eventually uh, ran sports for ACOG, the uh, committee for the League, Olympic Games in Atlanta. I was a uh, junior in college at the time and was a runner for NBC Olympics. Uh, and that was my first kind of foray. I, could, I parlayed that into a job, kind of an event planning for broadcast operations for NBC Olympics in Sydney, Australia in 2000. And then I went back to graduate school uh, and uh, shifted into a career in finance uh, in New York uh, and spent three years doing finance uh, for Bear Stearns, and uh, was focused on tech, media, and telecommunications in that capacity. And then a headhunter called
2: uh, from the NFL, and that was 11 years ago. No, uh, so. that, that's great. And so, and, and Cole, you've been working with professional sports teams uh, for most of your career. Uh, previously at Ticketmaster, and, and now at Fanatics. What was your first job? And did that did that hook? Your hook into sports?
5: Yeah, mine was more direct, I think, um, than than, um, than Kevin and, and Patrick's. Mine started right out of college, between undergrad and grad, uh, working for the Cowboys. So um, I kind of jumped. Yeah, I, I kind of jumped right into it, and uh, I sort of fell into what then sort of dictated what I would do for the next almost 15 years, which was tickets. So I started with Cowboys and tickets organization got a good visibility, um, as I think a lot of people do who work in, in ticket sales. I got a decent visibility into how that, that world works. And realized early on that there was really only one big company that was in tickets at the time, driving tickets at the time. And so from there, uh, I, I got an interesting opportunity after sort of networking and getting out and meeting some folks um, to meet a company called tickets.com, or at least meet with people from tickets.com. And this was before, those who are familiar with Tickets.com, it was before we sold to Major League Baseball, Advanced Media. And uh, I did that a couple of years after starting with the Cowboys. And then kind of away we went. And there were a few transactions along the way, one to, one to BAM, one to a, a company um, that, that, George, uh, that George was with, or a team that George was with quite some time ago, the Rockets. And, and, uh, and then that led me ultimately to Live Nation and, and Ticketmaster. So in one, one way or another, I think I've been around, in and around sports really since the start of my yeah. career.
2: So, so the lesson for those of you in the audience, you got to be very careful about the job you take after uh, after Sloan, right? That's because, right. Uh, um, it, it, it might uh, it might dictate, might be
5: locked in. It might be
2: might dictate the rest of your life. Exactly what right. You? What about for you, Jennifer?
6: So, actually, like Patrick said, I started uh, for the owner's son, except the owner in this case was Mark McCormick, uh, and I started in 1998 at IMG, where Todd McCormick, uh, Mark's youngest, had convinced his dad a year earlier that this internet thing 1.0 was gonna be a big deal. And Mark didn't really believe him, so we only funded half of it, and Todd went out and got independent funding, I think the crafts were even involved, um, to, to start this company, which we called TWI Interactive. And in 98, we were building broadband websites for 56K modems um, that actually ended up being the first websites for Manchester United, the British Open, and, uh, and Wimbledon. And so I had a six-dollar-an-hour internship after graduating, uh, and have been in sports and tech ever since.
5: And because you work in sports, you still make about the same. Yeah. Right. Exactly.
6: Yes.
2: <laughs> Another so lesson for 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 the folks in the. That's area. right. Uh, George, how about you? What was your uh, first foray into
7: sports? Um, when uh, well, it goes it goes back to the 80s. So uh, I was. Uh, uh, Graduated from Harvard College, and uh, my dad wanted me to get some sales experience, and so I was from San Antonio, and I had uh, worked for a period of time in a straight commission job, uh, selling program advertising and season tickets, and I I think uh, it was a great it was great it's great to get sales experience at the early in your career, and definitely if you're going to work in sports, because ultimately it's you know it's a local sales and marketing experience, at least the team business is. So uh, that's, that's had a, it's had an influence on me uh, throughout my career. Great. So uh, I guess first question for our, for our group, um, now that we
2: know a little bit more about them, is you know, can anyone become an entrepreneur? Are sports entrepreneurs born or, or made? Um, Scott Shane, Professor of Entrepreneurship at Case Western and the author of a book called Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders, How Your Genes Affect Your Work Life, actually links entrepreneurial success uh, to nature as much as nurture. He studied the rates of entrepreneurship in uh, hundreds of pairs of identical twins you know, that, have a, um, that share 100% of their genes, and fraternal twins that share 50% of their genes. And Professor Shane discovered that higher rates of uh, shared entrepreneurial tendencies among the identical twins. And so he determined roughly 30 to 40% um, of the tendency to be an entrepreneur is innate, uh, not taught. So, Jennifer, I want to throw that question to you. Uh, do you agree? Is there such thing as a born
6: entrepreneur? I mean, I'm going to go against the data here a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't really think so. I, I think it, if, I guess if curiosity is linked to your DNA, then maybe that is the case. But to me, everything I've seen and, and experienced in my life is really come down to hard work and curiosity and sort of having a, f- Maybe an intelligent lack of fear about going to talk to the head of a company or a major investor or taking that chance that no one else takes. So, if that's genetic, maybe. But okay. otherwise, I don't think so.
2: Well, Kevin, as the head of 32 Equity, uh, you invest in entrepreneurs on behalf of the NFL clubs. Uh, Do you look for an entrepreneurial gene when you're investing, you know, in in prospective companies?
4: Um, You know, it's a good question. I I think certainly um, we look for uh, talent in management. I think one thing that I've learned over the last five, six years of spending time on the investment side of the NFL business um, is that you can have a a lot of great ideas um, and interesting models and concepts, but if you don't have the right people. Um, uh, executing against that and the right vision for it, it can fall down and put another way, you know. Um, so so I think from my perspective, uh, you, you certainly, you know, we don't like to take um, model risk, but we are willing to take execution risk. And when we take execution risk, we're willing to and interested in backing talented people. Uh, and, I, and I have found, I mean, to Jennifer's point, um, that some of the most successful entrepreneurs I see, and I look at myself in the mirror and I'm not one, um, are wired up a different way in some ways. And uh, whether that's birth or whether that's formed through experience, um, there's just folks and maybe it's a function of curiosity or just uh, like a depth of passion for what they're doing. Um, But uh, some of the most successful entrepreneurs I've seen are just, it seemed to me, it's like they, they, they can walk and sleep at the same time. Uh, because of, of, of how passionate and, and just the way they kind of operate and are relentless in the pursuit of what they're, what they're going after. So you're looking for sleepwalkers. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, we
2: don't talk about that investment thesis much, right. but yes, that's one of them. George, what about,
7: what about you? What, what, what's your perspective on the born versus made debate? Um, I like what Jen said about an intelligent lack of fear um, uh, and uh, curiosity, too, and passion, but everybody doesn't have it. And, uh, and, and I appreciate and would share Kevin's honesty and that when I look in the mirror, I don't, I, I'm not uh, as comfortable as you need to be. Uh, I don't have as intelligent a lack of fear as I think you need to be. So I think that's a great question for uh, somebody who's getting ready to start their career because you know, everyone wants to, wants to be, quote, entrepreneurial. Because I, I, I don't think I would ever want to be the guy in the room or in the office that people said, oh yeah, he's the not, not entrepreneurial one. Uh, so maybe the word is a little bit overused. But you, know, you have to be comfortable with uh, you know, not knowing whether you're going to make payroll or not, you know, not, know, not know, and you have to want that more than you know, the security of being associated with something that's already established. And I think, in that sense of the word, I think it does go to character, and it, whether whether it's genes or or nurture, you know, it, it is, they're different. You know, a real entrepreneur is different.
2: Got it. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle this with uh, building uh, the sports businesses with uh, with some of our real entrepreneurs here. Um, you know, entrepreneurs often begin with a problem that no one is solving, right? Or in a given industry, or perceived gap. Uh, in, in the marketplace, and you know our panelists here have been uh, both in large companies, entrepreneurs, um, or I would say entrepreneurs in smaller startups, and intrapreneurs uh, within larger, more established organizations. And so I'd love to dig a little bit into the challenges of building businesses, you know, within you know these very very different uh, environments. So so Patrick, um, you being I think we can call you a real entrepreneur, um, you've led smaller teams at Associated Content. And now the Action Network, but also bigger teams at at Google and CBS. Um, what problems were you trying to solve, and you know, help us understand some of the the challenges that you experienced uh, in in both the, the smaller uh, and larger organizations?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, a place like Google, a perfect business model can hide a lot of you know failure in a weird way. I mean, when you're swiping credit cards 24 hours a day across the world, and you have the margins that Google does, it can hide a lot of oftentimes sub-tier people inside of companies so um, that's kind of a rare thing when you're able to have that kind of distribution a perfect business model and the things that kind of make sense in that way and then for me going to a place like cbs and and trying to create a culture around real technology Um, you know cbs is a great business and cbs is broadcast television with an aging audience and all the things that kind of come around it but it was always a really difficult difficult challenge to recruit and hire really top quality technical talent. It just always was. Um, you know, that was not an issue for Google. That wasn't an issue for most of the startups that I've built and run, um, including the Action Network. Um, it's just getting really strong, sophisticated technical count talent is I think one of the biggest challenges for a lot of these companies that all want to sort of take advantage of opportunities in digital and build big businesses that are high margin and they're sort of attacking big markets as you were mentioning. But, you know, even going back to some of these other things like I always say to my teams if your job is not your hobby you're never going to be successful uh, and what I mean by that is you don't necessarily have to go into a business that is your absolute passion when you're not working But if you're able to find something that is your hobby as well, because you put in the hours that are not going to be commensurate with a great family life, they're not going to be, you know, so startups can be a very lonely life. But if it's not your hobby, you're not going to be successful, I always say. But, you know, it all comes back to some of the things these folks have said. You just have to find the best talent, you know, at our teams. That's what I say. 25% of everyone who ever works for me is, is recruiting and finding good people.
2: At least, yeah. So, and you've been on both sides of the table, right? So you've been selling to large media companies and you've also been at large uh, media companies, you know, looking at uh, acquisition targets. What advice do you have to folks here in the room uh, that are sitting at those tables?
3: In terms of like getting acquired, that kind of thing, or?
2: Yeah, or, or just even trying to do a deal, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a funny thing about corporate development. I think a lot of the people on this panel have probably sold companies as well. And the person who works at corporate development at a large media company at any company, that person, if that deal doesn't work, they're gonna get fired. Like, it's literally that drastic. You know, it's hard to sort of make decisions when you're kind of have that kind of pressure. So the the person that you're often talking to is, is often on sort of what I like to call as a fishing expedition, that they're not necessarily actually gonna buy your company. So to have the sort of tea leaves and understanding, we just sold a business, Uh, to Spotify a few weeks ago called Gimlet Media, which is a podcasting company. And you can kind of get the tell pretty quickly if they're serious about it. You have to have the right product market fit. You have to have a deficit inside of that company that they're not gonna be able to build. And if you look at Spotify, Spotify nine out of every $10 goes to labels so they needed a business where they could own more ip and own more content so buying gimlet gives them an opportunity to own content so that was something we saw full stop as we looked at that business that they just needed to be able to bring the margin from content acquisition uh down so that was you know something you could see as you're going through the process of selling a business got it so cole
2: you've similarly traded uh entrepreneurial gigs at tickets.com and vertical alliance for chief revenue uh officer business card at ticketmaster and you know, fanatics is probably somewhere in between. Uh, what, what, what problems were you trying to solve? Uh, and did you experience some of the same challenges that Patrick talked about?
5: Yeah, I think so. I think that, um, I think if I kind of look along this timeline of, of personal entrepreneurship, I think that I probably evolved over time from, from thinking that entrepreneurship was about solving problems and challenges and being more opportunistic minded about what's out there for us to go after. And I think that sometimes can be the difference between what what a good concept when a good concept becomes a great concept. Good concepts sometimes are stem from this thought of how do I go solve this challenge? Sometimes great concepts can can come from uh, I'm going to pivot and now go after this great opportunity that I've I've now identified. So I think that that for me Early on, maybe it was about solving challenges of how do we introduce better ticketing technology to the industry. When we started Vertical Alliance, and the Rockets were one of our first partners actually when George, right uh, right around the time that George was there and left, I think we were mission driven to do just that, solve the problem of an industry where we felt there were gaps in technical cap- technological capabilities. And so we were on this mission to go and, and try and solve for those challenges around event ticketing. And later in, our, in my career, we sold, we sold that company to Dan Gilbert, which ultimately became uh, Flash Seats, and then became uh, what is now Axis. And then joining um, Live Nation, creating Live Nation Ticketing, again, that was more mission-driven. That was how do we go and create a, a ticketing technology that is right both for us at Live Nation and can solve some of the challenges that teams and venues have. And as we bought Ticketmaster two years later, and then we, um, we got deep into that integration, we realized, sure, there are challenges that need to be solved, but there are also big opportunities that we have now to become both a primary and a resale company at the same time. So we sort of pivoted the model to be as much about the opportunity that's in front of us to go and grow a business uh, as it was um, solution-oriented.
2: Got it. And then, uh, George, uh, as president of the, uh, or CEO of the, of the Rockets, uh, you also saw the limit of, Existing solutions uh, in the, in the ticketing market, and 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 wanted to to build a more entrepreneurial uh, alternative. Uh, we t- Cole mentioned uh, vertical alliance. Can you tell us about you know the the, the challenges that you saw, and also the challenges uh, specifically of of doing that within a team context?
7: Sure. Um, we were very frustrated. Uh, it was actually during the NBA lockout, and uh, we wanted to be able to communicate with our. Uh, season ticket holders, and um, at that time, uh, Ticketmaster was really the, uh, the only choice we had you know, for a ticketing system, and uh, there were limits to it, uh, both in terms of the shopping experience that consumers had. It was really more with a concert buyer in mind that the technology was developed and not so much with uh, you know, a sports customer, and, and that was our primary focus, was our sports customers. And 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 then the other thing was uh, just our ability to know the customer and to communicate with the customer. And so uh, we tried to get Ticketmaster to make adaptations, but they had such a large installed base they really couldn't do that. And so, you know, we ended up uh, making an investment in vertical alliance, you know, to try and solve those problems. And and we were able to solve our problems. Um, and and get a system that met our needs better but um, it was expensive and it was a distraction for the staff to try and operate you know a company like that and so we 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 ended up uh, uh, you know we also didn't have the stomach for the investment that was required to be successful and so we kind of had gotten what we wanted and and the Rockets still use this ticketing system today and Gretchen Shears here who's the chief revenue officer the Rockets. and at the time she was like a second-year employee, you know, kind of handling the implementation, but um, you, you know, they love that system, but we needed to get out of it as entrepreneurs because we had kind of solved our problem And we needed to focus on running the Rockets So, um,
2: so Jennifer um, your firm, firm Wasserman um, has grown largely, you know, through acquisition. How can you still be? Um, entrepreneurial as you scale and you know, I think I um, you know, when we talked a little bit before, you you talked about how you were actually trying to build an entrepreneurial venture, you know, within uh, within Wasserman. Can you tell us a little bit more about
6: that? Sure, absolutely. Um, And this is, frankly, part of what I love about the agency uh, role in this sports ecosystem is that there's so many opportunities and problems and challenges to solve, like Cole mentioned, that we get the opportunity to, to do that for our clients every day. And wherever those may be, if you're representing a brand, their challenge. If you're representing a team or a league, helping solve their challenge. And the, the opportunities that come from all of that in between. But we could spend a, and have a nice business just solving our clients' problems and, and challenges. But I think the opportunity that Casey leads with in our business I, is to find that North Star and build towards it. And then say, okay, what are the other opportunities for us as an agency that we can leverage because of our positions in this market or these types of uh, you know, assets, if you will. And so one of the things that, that we're doing now um, is you know, we represent over 1,800 athletes, I believe, today, but athletes have not become the influencers on digital that we also represent. And we have a company called Laundry Service and an influencer platform called Cycle that that works for non-athlete influencers. And it's kind of interesting that the endorsement model that athletes have have pioneered really has not translated to digital. So we think we've now come up with a model um, and are uh, on the verge of launching a new business that will help us really answer that for athletes. And we're tremendously excited about it because it... It came out of the idea of looking across our business and going and looking across the industry of athletes as media companies and Wasserman's position in the business and saying, no, we can go for this. Now, it wasn't that easy of like, hey, Casey likes it, so we're going to do it, right? There was a lot of building of business models and approvals and working through the business cases, but everyone came together and put their hands in the circle and said, this is something that's right for our company. Um, and so it's a tremendous process, and, yeah, I'll have more to tell you about in about a month. Right. <laughs> so,
2: and then next year we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll ask you how it's, yeah, how it's absolutely. going. Yeah. Yeah.
6: I'll be making more than $6 an hour then, though. Yeah, that's right.
5: Not me. <laughs> no. <laughs> Saj doesn't pay me well enough. Yeah, uh,
6: well. You
5: so, work on
2: that. Uh, so let's talk about raising capital because it sounds like we, we need to raise some more capital here. Um, once you have a product or solution, um, you know, to that industry problem, you know, you know, the entrepreneur is then out raising money. Uh, when I was a VC, uh, we often debated whether we should invest behind um, the jockey or the horse, right? And by that, I mean, are you more likely uh, to uh, win behind a great entrepreneur or is it, you know, the business model? Is it the product? Um, this being the panel on entrepreneurship, um, I guess we're going to all have to say uh, the jockey. But, uh, but I want to ask Kevin, is that true? Um, you know, do you typically bet on the jockey or the horse?
4: Um, we bet on the jockey and we bet on the horse and good news for you is we typically put football jerseys on both of them.
5: We like that. Yeah. We like that. So
4: um, part of the, um, as I mentioned earlier, obviously the talent and, and the vision and the management team is critical. Um, the the execution is, is going to s- sit behind that and that's really important. Um, The idea and the concept, the service, the platform, the solve the problem they're solving or that the team is solving is is important. Um, And 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 our whole platform is based on being able to attach that strategically to something the NFL is interested in. Uh, And there's a pretty wide aperture in terms of what that could be. Um, But if we can get an idea or a concept or or an opportunity, and we can align that um, with the league collectively and the scale that the league can potentially bring to the opportunity. Um, and that can come in any number of ways. It could be whether it's a separate content relationship. Uh, it could be something that is strategically interesting for our brand. Um, you know, We feel like we can typically uh, stair-step a company uh, or, or, a, or a company or a model's uh, prospects in the marketplace. Uh, and so that's what we look for. And then um, we can do that in our, in our normal, of course, licensing business. When we license rights to a partner, whether it's content or promotional rights or otherwise, typically that helps them drive their business. Um, the idea behind us actually participating in the equity is because we, when, we, when we license these opportunities to third parties, we can not only drive the business around football, but we can hopefully drive their business more broadly, uh, whatever that may be. Uh, To be able to participate in that we can do that by pricing the license in a a manner that that we feel like is is uh, accounting for that value creation Um, another way to participate that is by uh, investing uh, and and having uh, an equity position uh, in a platform or a company Uh, and that's that's that was really the thesis behind why the league five years ago started doing this Uh, and to the extent we can invest uh, we're now aligned with them uh, and the incentives are there As someone selling rights, of course, I'm aligned. I want to see them successful. We want to grow businesses and partnerships. Um, To the extent that that deal comes up in three years, I'll probably go out in the marketplace and look at a whole set of options and see what's best strategically uh, for the league and for the fans and otherwise. Um, To the extent I have capital in the company, that changes the formulation a little bit as it relates to my incentives and the alignment I have with a partner. And so that, you know, a lot of that is kind of the, the thesis behind why the league uh, and, the, and the owners have decided to start, uh, start investing directly behind these, these opportunities we're seeing.
2: So if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm uh, approaching, you know, the NFL specifically, I should really, you know, come to you and say not just, hey, I need the money, this is what I'm trying to do, but how um, I think the NFL can help me.
4: Yeah, I think, I th- I think if your idea is good and, you, you know, you've got talent, uh, the money's the easy part. Um, and I, I say that. Maybe maybe <laughs> lightly, or maybe from my orientation, um, but the guy the, with the shield over here. Yeah, so so billionaires I, I, behind you. I, yeah. I say that only in that the value of a partnership, um, as it relates to investment, um, is from our perspective, what we can bring, you know, I, I, I show up with money just like another venture capitalist or a private equity person shows up with money. What I hope the league can bring in certain circumstances is differentiated strategic partnership. It's the thesis of any strategic investor, theoretically. But if the right set of facts are there, and in terms of the opportunity and the entrepreneur and the partner, and the NFL can show up and plug that into our system, the money is helpful, obviously. Uh, but it's the it's the platform that hopefully we can we can leverage at the NFL to really drive. Uh, growth and value creation in the partnership. And I think that's what we bring that's different. Um, uh, and, and that's, that's certainly you know, how we approach those discussions. Yeah.
2: Uh, so George, you, you know when we talked uh, a little bit earlier, you, you said that you've seen every pitch under the sun. What, what makes a su- successful pitch and what resonates with you more, that strong team or that compelling idea? Maybe give us an example.
7: Um well at, at this at this stage in, in my career I feel like I've seen so many uh, startups uh, go bad that um, I really want to see the jockey and the horse uh, together uh, uh, and 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 the numbers and so I like to see I like to see a company that is already making money um, and that has uh, you know a good track record um, and uh, just, just as an example, uh, you know, uh, four years ago, uh, I met uh, the uh, Patrick Ryan and Ignacio Cubero at, at Ventilect. And, you know, they had been in business together for eight years. Uh, you know, they were growing the top line at like uh, 70% compounded annual growth uh, a year. You know, they were profitable and becoming more profitable. And then, you know, the two of them really understood consumer behavior in a way that... Um, at least I didn't understand uh, the digital consumer and, and what was happening in tickets uh, the way they understood it. And I had been a team president for, you know, 10 years, had really smart people working with me and stuff. And so I, I thought, you know, these guys are going to have success. And so that that's, I, I like to just pick a few uh, spots. And so that to me is, I really like to see all three things uh, in line up like that. And. In, in that case, uh, you know, that's, that's turned out very well and that, that companies continue to grow at that rate. And, um, you know, in the business, it certainly can evolve, but I, I like to see the fundamentals in place, you know, before I, you know, uh, put my own money in a deal.
2: Got it. So the jockey, the horse, and numbers.
7: Got it. Um,
2: so uh, you know, we talked about the jockey, but uh, it's probably worth talking about building teams, right? Because uh, I don't know a single entrepreneur that won on their own. Um, and I guess that holds true for all teams, sports or otherwise. Uh, Patrick, as, as, as CEO, um, share your approach to the, to the group here about uh, building teams and, and company culture, right? And, and what are the hallmarks, do you think, of, of a winning entrepreneurial
5: culture?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned a little bit about it earlier. I think all of your team, whether you see an org chart that has lots of opportunities and openings or not, they need to spend a fair percentage of their time recruiting. And always thinking about recruiting and thinking about talent and hiring, you know. And I think any startup is always looking for technical talent. Those are some of the most difficult people to find, and they're they're usually in two places: either San Francisco or New York. New York increasingly has become a better place for technical talent. But there's Austin, Texas. There's you know there's lots of great areas. Boston here, obviously. Um, but you know, really focusing and having a team thinking about how to hire bring in people and motivate people you know i was sort of taught that at google i mean google there was a a a real a real impetus and thought around great ideas can come from anywhere um and i and i espouse that in my team some of whom are here um whether you're in the content organization in marketing (coughs) in product, engineering, finance, whatever that might be, you might have a great content idea, you might have a great partnership idea, you might have a great hiring idea, you might all of those things. I, I really wanna encourage teams to think in that way, but I think in this battle for uh, intellectual superiority and in hiring great teams and building teams, it's just, it's really difficult um, and it, it, it takes time, but it, takes, it needs to have a lot of attention other than sort of what I would say is your day job and being an executional person inside of a company because it's, oftentimes it's not money, it's gonna be culture. It's gonna be someone meeting your team and saying, this is what I'm gonna devote my time to and I really believe in the team and the organization and the market and the TAM and all the things that are representative of big businesses. But I don't know, I, just, I, I think hiring needs to be a singular focus for everyone. Got it.
2: So Jennifer, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And I also want to, um, you know, sort of pick your brain a little bit on going to Wasserman. Going back. So you started at Wasserman, and then you, you, you came back after stints at the NBA and mm-hmm. at one of the clubs. Can you talk about how, um, you know, your experience with culture, you know, sort of, uh, you know, across those different types of organizations and why ultimately you went back?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I, I mean, culture is 100% uh, what... I think motivates teams to win, right? If you, I mean, I think the desire to belong was pretty high on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but we all wanna belong to a winning team and that winning team so often is loving the people you're working with, not that you're best friends with them, but it wakes me up every day and gets me in the car to go to work to work with the people that I work with at Wasserman. And that is just such an incredible motivating factor um, and you know, I was sort of spoiled. I spent nine years at IMG. I went to Wasserman for seven years. I thought, oh, great! All companies are like Wasserman. Like everyone has a great culture. Um, and I went to the NBA at Teambo and it was just like Wasserman. I'm like, this is awesome, but it's New York and it's cold. And um, <laughs> and then I got recruited to go back to the to the Clippers, and I had never worked for a team before. And Um, And, you know, Steve Ballmer's an entrepreneur, and he's uh, an incredible human being, and what he's doing with that team is a wonderful story. And I got to work on an OTT product that we were building. But at the end of the day, I missed the culture and the camaraderie and the people of Wasserman, because great ideas can come from everyone. And if you don't believe that in the core of, of your organization, and give people those opportunities to contribute and participate and be part of that winning team, you're not going to win, ultimately, long term. And so I, um, I was so happy when they actually offered me the opportunity to go back because I missed that. And now in building this new team, I literally feel like all of our open jobs, we're going to hire the A team. Um, and the ones that have we've filled already are like check the box. This is an A person, and they're not an A person because they have a certain degree or they have, you know, went to a certain college or they're friends with somebody. They're an A person because they fit with the culture and the energy that we're bringing into this group. Um, and I want to go to battle with them every day and make money together. And it's really, really important.
2: And you talked about uh, how you went to go work for an entrepreneur, Steve Ballmer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, was also a, a, a sports owner. So if you're a sports entrepreneur. You know, are you better off, at, you know, working with a team or, you know, starting off with a team or, or, or actually going directly to the
6: league itself? So if you're an entrepreneur with a, with a technology or an idea, um, I think, look, I think as equally real as the idea is that this is a job and, you know, while sports is cool, you have to still have the right business model. Um, if you are an entrepreneur developing a technology and you think it applies to sports, you better know the sports landscape as well as you know your technology. Um, Because we see entrepreneurs all the time come in and, I mean, I almost feel bad. Because they come in and they're like, I have this great new arena technology and I really wanna go talk to the league. And it's like, well, that's great, but the NBA controls one arena for one day, maybe five, throughout the year, and that's around All-Star. So if you wanna be in an arena, you need to go to a team, right? And by the way, you need to go to a team that controls its own arena. So when I was at the Clippers, we'd get pitched all the time on arena technologies and we couldn't do anything because AEG owns Staples Center in LA and we don't have any say. So it's about knowing that business, knowing the rights landscape and knowing who controls, frankly, the money and the power and where your best fits are going to be because it is as much as horse, jockey, whatever, you walk in the room to any one of us on this panel and start pitching your idea. And if you don't know the sports business and, and the right questions to be asking, it, it's it's a much steeper hill to climb before we open that opportunity to work with us.
2: Yeah. So I want to get uh, another league perspective, you know, from Kevin. Um, you know, given your role with, within the NFL, leading overall media strategy uh, and business development efforts, as well as the direct investing that we talked about. You know, take us behind the shield um how are you changing the way you work with entrepreneurs and um you know maybe talk us talk a little bit about um what you've done with on location and how you've actually spun out a, sort of a, the assets within the league uh you know in on location experiences
4: sure yeah i mean that's it's an extension of the the thesis that we had described i mean the nfl and a little bit to the earlier question, and Jennifer's comments on entrepreneurship in, in, in the sports ecosystem is hard. There's, there's systemic inefficiencies, though, that can, be, that can be taken advantage of. And the leagues and the clubs um, will inherently do certain things and do them very well. Um, they, will, you know, they will put on events. They will, they will administer a sport. Uh, they will monetize certain rights that they're focused on. They will sell tickets and sponsorships and media rights but there are things that they will never do. Uh, they will not build a ticketing platform per se. They won't necessarily build an e-commerce business um, per se. And as things evolve, but the, you know, we, the NFL doesn't have a balance sheet. Um, and so as we look at, uh, at different opportunities, as well as as we look you know, at our own business, we think about that and where do we um, license or deploy capital in the market around ideas that we think have either a a risk and return profile that we don't necessarily have the appetite to do ourselves. Uh, And On Location was an example of that. On Location was a business with three people, 3,500 tickets, sitting on the seventh floor at 345 Park Avenue. And it didn't make a lot of sense um, for it to stay that way. Um, It was providing a service. Uh, It was providing a service for fans at the Super Bowl. You would come, you would buy a package, a hospitality package. Each show with the Super Bowl, you would get a tailgate, um, and you would get a—you know—potentially could buy a hotel room. And it would be behind the secured perimeter, and be kind of a premium experience around our most premium event. Um, but we weren't investing behind it. We weren't—we um, weren't investing people, resources, talent. It wasn't growing, uh, and I'm not sure that it was necessarily creating a better experience for fans year over year. So we looked at it for a lot of reasons. Um, we decided to take it and essentially put it back out, put it into the marketplace. And we did that effectively by seeding a new licensee. We created a new company. We took the rights that basically represented the operations of a hospitality business and we granted those rights vis-a-vis a license, which is what we do uh, to that company. Uh, And then we brought in private equity and capital uh, to professionalize the business. Uh, and then obviously our own private equity arm invested alongside it as well for reasons I had kind of identified earlier for alignment and, and, and making sure that, that we were kind of all in on this. Uh, with that um, you found uh, now a balance sheet uh, and uh, a talent uh, talented management team. We had uh, John Collins, who was the CEO of NHL come on board as the CEO um, you know, the, the equity structure of the business was able to bring, to your comments earlier, bring talent on who would now participate uh, with equity uh, and participate alongside the success of the business. Um, and we did it for reasons that were both financial and non-financial. For us, the business has grown substantially. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's now hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue um, versus the $20 million it represented inside the league office. It's hundreds of uh, employees. Um, and, and importantly, it invested behind the experience our fans were having. And so it, it, it created a lot of value for us around our events, in particular, Super Bowl, um, by creating a better experience for our fans, uh, by having capital and talent and all the things that it requires to do that. Um, so that's really where we get our payback. That's the return for us, is that. Uh, and, and on top of that, obviously, we're seeding a business that's core asset is the Super Bowl, which is a you know, obviously a massive event. And so what they can do and have done is go out and build and acquire more rights. And so with the Super Bowl as your anchor tenant, you can go and you can, you can, you can build out additional events in sports and in music. And now they have a portfolio of, uh, of, of you know, hundreds literally of events whether it's a, you know, Coachella or whether it's the Masters, uh, that they've are, they are, they built a business around. Uh, and as an equity holder, that's great for us because the business has grown substantially, but also as a league, uh, it, it certainly has created a vehicle and a partner, an affiliated partner, um, that's really putting a lot of time and energy behind our fan experiences, the experiences of the, 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 the clubs who, who I ultimately report into, uh, our partners, uh, and sponsors who bring um, their business to, uh, to the Super Bowl every year and want to make sure that that experience is what they've invested behind in terms of whatever they're activating around or the, the, whoever they're hosting, et cetera. So um, for us, it was an extension of our overall thesis, um, and it was, an, it was an opportunity for us to kind of create this platform that had the ability to invest behind um, a service that was needed and that we would never do. Uh, and that, I think, also extends to anything that's in the ecosystem. To Jennifer's earlier comment, I mean, that's where there's opportunity. There's opportunity where, where the leagues and the, and the properties need a service, uh, and but they're not necessarily going to extend and do it. They're going to need to find a solution out there. And then as technology continues to disrupt this, this space, um, and whether it's you know, legalized sports betting or whether it's competitive gaming or whether it's all these things that are continuing to happen, there's just more and more of those opportunities to take advantage of, but you have to do it in the right way, to your earlier comment, because the second you get in, you know, a partnership with a league or a sports property, you, know, you had a three four year deal with them, that's well, great, it took you two years to get the deal, it's a long sales cycle, you're, uh, you're displaying something in their venue that they happen to maybe own, guess what, the deal's up in five years, and the person who usually is holding all the, uh, all the keys in that conversation is going to be the sports property or the league, that's where the leverage sits. So it's a tricky business. But if done the right way, with the right opportunity, with the
2: right awareness of what you're doing, there's a lot of opportunity. Got it. So the leagues hold the keys. In certain settings. Got it. Well, Cole, you work with uh, teams, um, many of whom are owned by successful entrepreneurs. Um, who 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 are the best teams uh, at investing in and, and working with sports entrepreneurs? Wow,
5: puts me on the spot. Um, <laughs> so I it, it, part and parcel of that answer. I want to go back to one thing that's really important because look if, if if the the five of us six of us across the stage are doing our jobs right, there's a handful of entrepreneurs that are out there that are trying to figure out what that roadmap looks like to go take those next steps. And I think one of the really important um, things that that Kevin just mentioned that can get lost in the in the mix of I, I have an idea, maybe I've proven the concept, maybe I, I, I actually have um, good financials and good and good returns, and now I want to go out and find capital. One of the one, one of the um w- one of the things that gets lost in that effort is sometimes thinking about not just who has the deepest pockets and therefore might have the the greatest likelihood of funding this great thing that i've started but actually how can they be strategic in helping me grow and i think one of the great things that kevin and the nfl have done with on low was that there were two big factors there. Number one was that the NFL could bring to the table immediate inventory and scale, which you can build fixed costs around that and then go grow profitably, which is which is a great asset that a that an investor can bring to the table. But the other thing, as Kevin was pointing out, was that they were also able to say okay and we also have all these teams that we can help take you into and we have connection to these events because these team owners and it helps the company grow pretty quickly so sometimes it's not just about where the best and the deepest money bags might be but also where's the the best opportunity you have to partner with somebody strategically given those connections or given the portfolio of the investments they already have that they can go either inject scale help you grow really quickly or man if you're super lucky both which is what i think OnLo and john um, we're able to accomplish with Kevin, so that's something that I think is really important for those who are out there going, "Wait, I've got a concept and I want to go try and raise money." Now, you take that to the question you asked, Saj about you know some of the some of the, the businesses that do that well. Look, the, uh, <laughs> I have a Homer answer, which is our family, which is Harris Blitzer Sports, in um, our in our owner uh, Michael Rubin. Um, and really spearheaded by Scott O'Neill, who's the CEO of that, of that group. I think they've done a tr- terrific job over the last um, few years at realizing, you know, there's a pretty finite amount of business around these things that we do. There's a finite number of concerts. There's a finite number of games between hockey in, in Jersey and basketball and, in Philadelphia. Um, So how do we go create opportunities around this brand, how do we go create opportunities that span well beyond this finite space of stuff that we're already in? I think we've done a great job of that, Um, and Scott has done a terrific job of of finding those opportunities, building incubators out in the Bay Area and determining how they can grow outside of that sort of fixed space that they're naturally a part of, being hockey and basketball teams and and arenas. Um, The Cowboys do a great job with it. I I think the Cowboys... Um, you know, Jerry has never been shy about saying the Cowboys football brand is how they got started. It is not where they'll finish, and where they'll finish is leveraging that brand and the impact and the swagger and the weight that that brand brings to, to the table in, in possible ventures that they can span outside of football, and, and they lead with that, and it's how they're able to go find new opportunities or find really great talent. Um, and, and turn it into, into something valuable is because they are able to leverage one of the biggest brands in global sports. So those are two that come you know, top of mind. The last thing that I'll say is what I love about what's happening in sports right now, and again, just good for you guys to have visibility into this, is that that is a practice. Those, those are just two organizations that do that really well from my vantage point and experience with some of the executives there. But it, it's a practice that's beginning to to really spread throughout professional sports, and you'd be hard pressed at this point to find mature businesses. Some leagues are more mature than others, but you'd be hard pressed to find mature teams um, that aren't finding a way, whether it's through esports or through other ventures that are breaking away from the traditional world that they operate in and figuring out where to go and invest and how to grow beyond that traditional. So world. It's,
2: it's really sports owners investing in platforms, not just not just teams.
3: Yeah. Sometimes some really old tight ends.
5: And some really old tight ends that that, that may come back and win a team a Super Bowl next year. You never know. You never know.
3: But players are a
6: big trend in investing these days as well. For for sure. sure. I just wanted to add one more thing to what you guys were saying is if you're bringing cool ideas and technologies to teams and leagues, part of understanding that business and, and to Kevin's point, like finding those efficiencies of what teams are going to do or leagues are not going to do and taking advantage of that is also don't make their jobs harder. Right? I ran sponsorship at a team for two years, and I had a lot of people come to me saying, "But you know, buy this fan app for five thousand dollars a month, and you can sell a sponsorship to it." It's like I got enough. I got to sell sponsorship to. I don't need an app to add to the inventory and lose five thousand dollars a month underneath it. So be be a little bit um, better researched. I would say in terms of how you can make their lives truly better and help them make more money together with you, not, uh, not in spite of what it costs them to, to pay you.
2: <laughs> so I want to I get to the fun part, the exits. Um, Patrick, you've had a cumulative $700 million uh, in exits across three companies in the last 10 years. I think I have those numbers right. So for entrepreneurs who are fortunate enough to have built a business that somebody actually wants to buy, um, how do you make that decision to sell? And what did you learn from that? first exit that um, informed how you approached maybe your your most recent one?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, venture backed investments are made for exit. So that's something that that is just the reality. It probably seems obvious, but um, it's not sort of the daily, uh, you know, walking orders for someone as an executive to try and figure out opportunities for where the business is going to land. Um, But as you know th- those venture dollars are going to need you know someone to acquire that business it was it was interesting seeing jimmy petraro jimmy was the executive sponsor the boss my first company uh, associated content when he was at yahoo um, so you always need to find in big companies an operating executive who has a PL that needs a business and can sort of sponsor the deal so i mentioned the corporate development people in some of these companies and they're often looking for companies and looking to investigate companies to acquire for strategic goals for revenue goals, for uh, distribution, all kinds of different things. But you really, it's key to find an executive who is going to be the person who's going to operate the business and sponsor that acquisition. You know, I mentioned Spotify when we sold Gimlet uh, a few weeks ago. That was that was similar. You had to find someone that had an immediate need for content, immediate need for IP, and an immediate need to distribute and get an opportunity to sort of bring those margins of content acquisition down. Um, you know, when we sold, sold Bleacher Report. Uh, to Turner, there was an obvious need for Turner to have a digital asset and to have an asset that would bring scale, that would bring social, and that would tell a different story for a rights holder that had amazing rights, which Turner did. So, And, and I would say for for Bleacher, and I was just with the new CEO literally this week, I would say it's probably one of the most successful big traditional media digital acquisitions maybe in history. Um, you know, it was th- those kinds of acquisitions can often... Uh, be die pretty quickly, not become very useful, or it gets written down by the company. It happens way too often, but to have a content-driven business in a really tough ad market that we see today, have that kind of acquisition. But yeah, I would say, again, you need an executive who's gonna be the sponsor of it that isn't really in corporate development, or you're really never gonna get a deal done. And you know, like I said, on the venture side, uh, Companies are invested in for exits, and that's something we are all aware of, that if we raise capital, that people are looking for a return.
2: Yeah. Uh, and Kevin, uh, the NFL had an exit with Learfield. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about you know the investment and the role that the NFL played uh, in that win?
4: Yeah, sure. Uh, so Learfield hits on a lot of the same themes for us. It was jockey. It was horse. Um, uh, it was probably a little less... Uh, Jersey uh, in that regard. But we were interested in Learfield. We came in uh, as part of a partnership when we first started this with Providence Equity um, and invested behind them. Greg Brown and his management team had a proven track record. Uh, they were private equity owned prior um, and had, had exited with Shamrock as their backers once already. Um, they were solving a problem for colleges and universities, uh, a, a problem that the colleges and universities were never going to solve themselves. Um, they weren't going to invest behind or in-source multimedia sponsorship sales, uh, ultimately turned into di- digital media and other kind of adjacencies that Learfield at, uh, built out. Um, they had the benefit of a network uh, to scale, a pretty hard business to scale, but they had the benefit of uh, you know, hundreds of colleges and universities ultimately um, to do that. Uh, their biggest competitor at the time, IMG, uh, obviously was in a process, uh, which I think helped them strategically. Um, and then fortuitously, um, there was another private equity buyer that wanted to, to own them uh, and, and saw the fact pattern and the history of the management team and what they were building, had an investment thesis um, and probably sold well earlier than we had anticipated. Um, the NFL's interest there was we had we had built and when I joined the league we were part of the thesis was we were in sourcing a lot of our digital media and owned and operated media assets. We had launched NFL Network in 2004 and 2007. We brought all the digital assets in uh, in house. Ultimately, that included the 32 club websites. So there was a network and a scale there and a. Uh, an experience that we could bring to Learfield as they were starting to build out those capabilities and thinking about how do you build a network across universities of digital sites? How do you think about, we have a reasonably sophisticated sponsorship business at the NFL. How do we think about multimedia sales in a kind of convergent technology market? So we were providing them a lot of you know, kind of best practices or, or you know things we learned along the way, and that was that was the, the tenor of the relationship with them. There wasn't a necessarily a direct tie-in between NFL licensing rights or things that we were doing day to day with Learfield but um, and an ex- exceptional company, st- obviously still is, and having mo- equity in that company now would be great. Uh, it, would, it was one of our first investments, so the exit proved to be kind of precedential for us, and it was, it, was a, it was a great outcome.
2: Got it. Well, I, um, I want to take a question from the audience, uh, and I'll throw this over to whoever wants it. Uh, it says, what is the biggest myth perpetuated in today's glamorized world of entrepreneurship and hustle culture? Anyone want to take a stab at that?
5: I'll take, a, I'll take a stab as it relates to, um, I'll, I'll sort of point the question back to our industry for one second. I think the biggest myth, um, and honestly, Jennifer touched a little bit on this as well earlier, the biggest myth is that this is sports, and like Hollywood, um, it's glamorous, it's sexy, it's filled with a lot of big personalities, and there's a ton of money to be made in it. The reality is there's a ton of money to be made in it to be certain. If you can, um, if you can make a 30-footer, uh, consistently, you can throw touchdown passes or catch touchdown passes or block really well, and you can make goals. There's a ton of money to be made in it, for sure. But the reality when it comes to sports is is that I'll use the same word I used earlier, but just in a different context. It's a very finite space. I mean, if you think about it, there's only about 150 clubs uh, across the five professional sports leagues. There are only a, a couple of hundred colleges, and then you sort of get into Division Division Two. Um, and so it's a super finite addressable market, if you think about it. And so that doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities in sports. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Um, what it means is you've got, you've got to be hyper vigilant about the model you're built, everything you've heard here, the model you're building, the people that you're out to hire, the culture you're going to establish from, from day one, the returns that you have to show that have proven enterprise value. You've got to be hyper vigilant about those things, and when you are, then you've got something you can take to market in a compelling way, and regardless of how small that um, addressable market might be, you're gonna be pretty successful. But it requires that hyper-vigilance, whereas there are so many other industries where the addressable market is not finite. It very well may be infinite in terms of your opportunities. if you love sports, you're here at this conference and you're here in this business because you love sports and you're an entrepreneur and you want to go start a business in this space, then, then the best advice that I can give and the best myth that I might debunk if it's out there about our business is go clear eyed into what, what your challenges are going to be, know what they are up front and go build something of value and then you'll blow right through those, those challenges.
4: And, and Cole, to your point, ideally scale beyond sports.
5: Yeah, if you can find a way. That's right. That's I mean, exactly right.
4: We we looked at a VR company. Uh, we've looked at many over the years, and the one that we finally put a little capital behind was sports applications, training, officiating as well, but also enterprise, and training large enterprise companies on uh, you know, ha- how to train their employees using VRs for health and safety reasons and, and industrial and otherwise. And, and we really like opportunities that aren't just sports. Yeah. Um, so to your point.
2: Great. Well, we just have a few minutes left. So I want to ask each of our or panelists uh, to name uh, an entrepreneur um, that they admire and then, you know, share with the group, you know, briefly uh, what you've learned from that entrepreneur uh, that you'd like to pass along to the future uh, uh, or current entrepreneurs in this, in this audience. So, George, I'll start with you.
7: Okay. Um, the uh, owner of the San Antonio Spurs when I was growing up was a man named Angelo Drosis, and he had, uh, uh, he, Acquired he had a very creative transaction where uh, the Spurs were playing the franchise was playing in Dallas and it was called the Dallas Chaparrales and um, He he rented the franchise from the Dallas based owners and he moved it to San Antonio And then uh, he had an option to buy the team and he bought it and it was an ABA Franchise at the time and then he was negotiated uh, on behalf of the ABA the NBA merger and uh, in that way, he got the Spurs into the NBA. And so that's how he became a, uh, a franchise owner in the NBA. And um, so what I learned from him was, uh, uh, and I had the opportunity to work for him, but I, what I learned from him was just uh, that basically anything is, is possible with creativity and and willing to take uh, risks. and. Uh, you know, it's it's made me stretch a little bit further in my career, and I encourage all you guys to do the same.
2: Yeah, Jennifer,
6: um, I was listening to Adam Grant's new book uh, on the plane, right up here, actually, and he had an interesting stat in there where 50% of the population of the U.S. are women. Three percent of the population of women of uh, of the U.S. is named John, but there are more Fortune 500 CEOs named John than there are women CEOs, and so. On the one hand, I could answer that any Fortune 500 company that's run by a woman would be one, would be one of my answers, but actually, Indra Nui would really be my answer, because while on the surface of it, she is not entrepreneurial in the sense of starting companies yet, she took a company that was so massively known in certain areas and diversified the businesses and made acquisitions in in areas that will solidify the business for so much longer that I think it was one of the harder things that I've ever seen any CEO do, quite frankly, for the future.
5: My, my, mine is super easy and super quick and it's such a homer answer but it is michael rubin it is our boss i mean I, I have never been around anybody like him in my entire life not just his tenacity but also his just obsession with focus on what you do do be the best at that and don't get distracted so it's a little homerish but it's my answer it is
4: a little homerish but i don't disagree with you yeah, yeah I've, we were investors as well uh in in uh, fanatics and part of the reason is he's He's a unique animal and he's a good example of someone um, who has been able to ring fence almost every major sports property, um, which is the reason why we invested behind him in part uh, because of what that provides from a competitive differentiation and the moat perspective in a market that is really, really hard. Uh, Got a guy named Andrew Paradise, who we invested behind out in California, who's also got that wiring, uh, who from a pure entrepreneurial perspective, who's kind of in, a cohort. He's a young a young young guy who is a good example of someone who's a company called Skills, uh, which is kind of at the convergence of a mobile gaming, uh, competitive gaming, mobile space, uh, really, really fast growing business, one of the fastest growing businesses, um, startup businesses in the country. Uh, we're really excited about him and what he's doing. Uh, and he is a good kind of indication of a lot of the themes we've seen. If you look at and read about him and that company, what he's been able to do, he is entrepreneur 101 and some of the attributes, whether born or shaped, I don't know, but we we certainly bet behind the jockey on
2: that one. Got it, Patrick. With the last word.
3: Yeah, I would you know I would say, and this person was not a classic entrepreneur, more of an executive, and, and one that I always think of when I try and tell people to how to operate their careers was Eric Schmidt. Um, Eric Schmidt was the CEO of Google, and Eric is is a pretty. You know nerdy and uh, kind of engineer and computer scientist so to hear him use the term network not as a computer network in nodes but he used to say and i think he took a few carnegie classes on public speaking he'd always say your name when you to you, patrick never underestimate the power of your personal network um and that sounds like a a weird thing for eric to say but i think that's great advice for anyone if you can call on someone you know I've met people here today that I'm add to my personal network. And I don't say that in a mercenary way, but they're all smart people, they're thoughtful, and they could be great partners in the future. So I think it's really smart to really think about growing your network, kind of nurturing it like you would a plant, a child, et cetera. And I think it can really go a long way in your career to build that network. Right. Well, hopefully all of you have added these panelists to your personal network.
2: Um, uh, I just wanted to offer a, uh, a round of applause um, and hope you will join me in thanking our panelists today.
0: If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th Annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com.
7: This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.